the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation I had with Chuck and Ashley Elliott. I used to be how to navigate large and small losses in life. But first, we'll look at some of the day's headlines. Well, as the White House continues to tout the alleged achievements of the president's Bidenomics agenda, there's a growing number of data that indicates that a gigantic economic crisis could be right around the corner. Most disturbingly, one important economic indicator that's currently flashing hasn't appeared since the 1930s during the height of the Great Depression. If the White House and Congress don't cut inflation, causing government spending soon, the results could be catastrophic. Well, here's a little historic context. In 2020, during the height of the coronavirus government lockdowns, President Donald Trump and the Democratic-led Congress spent vast amounts of money to keep the economy, financial system, and stock market afloat. Trillions of dollars in additional government spending occurred, all of which was financed with debt and money printing. The never-before-seen levels of money creation were fueled by policies set by the Federal Reserve, which encouraged Congress to spend more money and kept interest rates extremely low, despite warnings from economists about the threat of future inflation. When President Biden entered the White House in January of 21, it appeared that the economic crisis caused by the pandemic lockdowns would end soon. A COVID-19 vaccine had been developed and many states had already started reopening and preparing to reopen their economies. Varney and company host Stuart Varney argues that House Republicans, led by Representative Matt Gates, moved uh, spending and the budget policies backwards. But rather than return spending to normal levels, Biden and congressional Democrats, with the blessings of the Federal Reserve, opted to keep government expenditures significantly higher than they had been prior to the pandemic. Well, the decision to continue high levels of government spending, coupled with the, the Fed's choice to keep interest rates low and the fallout from the crisis in Ukraine, caused inflation to soar to levels not experienced in four decades. Prices for nearly all consumer items, from eggs to milk to gasoline, skyrocketed. Well, in an effort to fix its mistake and curb out the control of, uh, of inflation, uh, curb out of control inflation, the Fed started dramatically increasing interest rates in 2022, a policy that's continued thus far into 2023. Meanwhile, the Biden administration and Congress have kept government spending much higher than the pre-pandemic levels. As a result of these policies, the inflation rate has dropped, but not enough to deflect prices, rather to deflate them. Most consumer goods and services, as well as rent and housing prices, remain much higher than they were before the pandemic started. Incredibly, the money supply, the amount of cash, um, checkable deposits and bank savings accounts has substantially decreased. That means even though prices are still going up, the amount of money available is continuing to drop putting an unprecedented strain on American families. 
Well, why are all eyes on the Federal Reserve then? Well, Sandbox Financial Partners Director of Investment and Vice President Blake Millard, he provides some insight on the recession countdown clock on uh, making money. He says the latest economic data show the annual M2 money supply growth uh, rate has been negative for the past three quarters, meaning the amounts of money available is shrinking rapidly. In the past 110 years, the only time Americans have seen the money supply drop this sharply was in the early 1930s during the height of the Great Depression. There is a significant difference this time around, however. In the 30s, when the money supply annual rate turned negative, prices dropped as well. In our current situations, prices are still prices rather are still going up despite the collapse in the money supply. To the extent we're seeing it today, this was never this has never occurred before. Well, the reduced availability of money caused by the Fed's policies and the administration's inflationary spending has created a dire situation for American families. Increasingly, more people are eating into their savings and going into debt to cover basic living expenses like food, utilities and housing. Survey data from the Federal Reserve show the bottom 80 percent of income earners, representing the vast majority of Americans, now have less in real household savings than they did prior to the pandemic. And savings for top income earners will likely fall below pre-2020 levels within the next 12 months. Well, the combination of higher prices and reduced availability of money has caused people to depend on credit cards and other forms of consumer debt at higher numbers than we've ever seen. In the spring, Americans' collective credit card debt topped $1 trillion for the first time in history. Now, Circle Squared Alternative Investments founder Jeff Sika, he explains why consumer spending will dramatically decline before the holiday. Higher prices, more government spending and debt and the lower levels of household savings. That's what Bidenomics actually looks like. Congress and the administration are currently in the midst of a battle over spending If a deal isn't completed soon, the government could shut down temporarily. Now is the time to reduce spending and bring fiscal sanity back to Washington before it's too late. But that's not likely to happen. They have 45, now closer to 43 days. The U.S. economy is uh, walking on thin ice. If prices and inflation don't come down soon, something that can only occur if Congress and the White House reduce spending then the U.S. is soon going to find itself in yet another massive economic crisis. If that occurs, I hope America Americans remember who deserves the blame. Well, there's plenty to go around, but the situation is very sobering. And I hope we can help influence those making decisions about our economy and our future to make wise long-term decisions and not political decisions because there is an election on the horizon. Well, the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, he waived 26 federal laws on Wednesday, allowing border wall construction in South Texas to resume under the Biden administration for the first time since former President Donald Trump left office. We'll tell you more about that and the confusion around it, what the president is saying, what Mayorkas said initially and what he's saying now. We'll talk about that and more when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. I'm Georgine Rice. Well, as I mentioned, the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, he waived 26 federal laws on Wednesday, allowing the border wall construction in the south of Texas to resume under the current administration, despite the fact that 
uh, President Biden, then candidate Biden, campaigned on the promise that he would never build more wall or any wall. There is presently an acute and immediate need to construct physical barriers and roads in the vicinity of the border of the United States in order to prevent unlawful entries into the United States in the project areas, Mayorkas wrote in the notice. The new construction project will add an additional 20 miles to the border wall of Star County, Texas, which has been reported as an area experiencing high illegal entry. Well, Border Patrol's real Grand Valley sector is in which the country is located has seen over 245,000 migrants enter the U.S. through that area during fiscal year 2023 alone. Continue watching. Uh, to see what happens next, well, among the 26 laws that the DHS waived included the Clean Air Act, Safe Drinking Water Act, Endangered Species Act, all notable environmental laws that limited further construction of the wall. The project will be funded by the Congressional Appropriations Package from fiscal year 2019, the notice stated. The announcement marks a noticeably a noticeable flip from President Biden's original stance on the matter. Building a massive wall that spans the entire southern border is not a serious policy solution, he said in January of 2021, ending the national emergency over the border crisis when he first became president. Well, while running against Trump in 2020, he emphatically stated there will not be another foot of wall constructed in my administration. Well, the plan comes as the rate of illegal immigration in the U.S. surges, with Border Patrol apprehending roughly 210,000 migrants um, after unlawfully crossing the border in September. This is the highest recorded level of border apprehensions in 2023. The administration announcement of additional border wall construction sparked criticism from the Democrat Party. A border wall is the 14th century solution to a 21st century problem. It will not bolster border security in Star County, Representative Henry uh, Seller of Texas said in a statement, according to Politico, I continue to stand against the wasteful spending of taxpayer dollars on an ineffective border wall. Now, those who live along that wall might beg to differ. Under Trump, about 450 miles of the wall were built along the southern border between 2017 and 2021. Once Trump left, Governor Greg Abbott took it upon himself and his state to add more to the border wall. In July, the Republican governor ordered the deployment of a thousand foot floating barrier in the Rio Grande that the Justice Department sued Texas over. It is a mess. Nate Jackson waiting in on the subject writes there is there are presently uh, there is presently an acute and immediate need to construct physical barriers and roads in the vicinity of the border of the United States in order to prevent unlawful entries into the United States in the project areas. The Department of Homeland Security secretary said in the Federal Register to help this process along the Associated Press notes that Mayorkas waived 26 federal federal laws. It was the AP ads. The administration's first use of a sweeping executive power employed often during the Trump presidency, and it'll depend on money appropriated in 2019 while Donald Trump was still in office. We can't corroborate it, but we believe the AP's reporter then fainted and somewhere by the border fence, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez started uncontrollably sobbing. During the Trump years, roughly 450 miles of border wall were erected. Though far from perfect, the problem of illegal immigration was far closer to being manageable than it had uh, than it had been and is now. Just four years ago, a border wall was racist. 
During the 2020 campaign, Joe Biden promised there will not be another foot of wall constructed in my administration. On his first day in office, he issued a proclamation and ending border wall construction while sanctimoniously declaring building a massive wall that spans the entire southern border is not a serious policy solution. In 2021, Mayorkas added, we do not agree with building the wall. Well, Team Biden even sued any Republican governors who dared continue to set up border barriers. Administration lawyers are literally in court today trying to remove the floating barrier in the Rio Grande set up by the state of Texas. The invasion that began in January of 21 and has exploded over ever since was precisely Biden's intent. So why the sudden change of heart? The crisis has gotten so bad that Democrats in sanctuary jurisdictions are bitterly complaining and even declaring states of emergency. New York City's Eric Mayor Eric Adams is traveling to Mexico this week to tell would-be migrants not to come. Biden's eco-fascist allies predictably started caterwauling about the wall. It's disheartening to see President Biden stoop to this level, casting aside our nation's bedrock environmental laws to build ineffective wildlife-killing border walls, said Lakin Jordahl of the Center of Biological Diversity. It will stop wildlife migration dead in their tracks. It will destroy a huge amount of wildlife refuge land. And it's an historic, uh, horrific step backwards for the borderlands. You know who else it will stop? Well, human migrants and cartels, many of which criminal records uh, and intent. Uh, And as far as the horrific step backwards, let's go back to the record to see what a few prominent Democrats said about building a border wall before it became politically advantageous to oppose it. In 2006, Joe Biden, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton and Chuck Schumer were among the 90 Democrats in both chambers who voted for the Secure Fence Act, which provided a 700 miles of physical barriers along the southern border. Obama said it would help stem some of the tide of illegal immigration in this country. They all said something similar about how important border security was. Today, Democrats have the left media fact checkers to debunk any comparison being Uh, Because the 2006 law was a fence, not a wall, and those are totally separate things. Well, anyway, here's President Joe Biden at least appearing to do something about the border crisis he created. Millions of illegal migrants have uh, come across the U.S. border since he took office, and most of them are still here. Stopping the flow is at least the first thing, if not the most important thing, that uh, that must be done reflexively. Doing the opposite of Donald Trump is the last thing Biden ought to be doing, though it's been his guiding principle for three years. If that changes even a little, it'll be a victory for America. Again, quoting from uh, Nate Jackson on the subject. Meanwhile, Judge Arthur N. Gorin issued an order prohibiting former President Donald Trump from transferring his assets without informing a court monitor This was today. Judge Arthur N. Gorin issued an order prohibiting the former president from transferring his assets. Uh, His supplemental order states that Trump and other dependents or defendants uh, must disclose all of the entities they own and declare in advance any anticipated transfer or transfer of assets or liabilities to any other entities. In addition to Trump, the order applies to Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump, former chief financial officer of the Trump Organization, Alan Weisselberg, and Trump Organization controller Jeffrey McConnery. 
The group has until the 26th of this month to hand over the information to the former federal judge, Barbara Jones, the monitor who is already overseeing the Trump organization's finances. The order is the second and Gorin has issued since the trial began on Monday. He also issued a partial gag order on Trump, prohibiting him from discussing court staff on social media. That order came in reaction to Trump publicly criticizing one of Ngoran's law clerks on social media. Well, a significant number of men misrepresented their gender identities to attend last week's Grace Hopper Celebration, an annual convention and career fair intended for women and non-binary technologists. We are committed to providing a celebratory space for women and non-binary technologists, and we hear your concerns about male participation the nonprofit organization's uh, Anita B., which organizes the convention, wrote on social media. This year at GHC, we have seen an increase in participation of self-identifying males. According to the to Anita B. organization, there were 30,000 attendees and over 400 speakers at the convention. The career fair portions allows uh, attendees to connect with the event's sponsors and patrons, including high-profile corporations like Apple, Amazon, Capital One, Deloitte, Disney, Goldman Sachs, Meta, Microsoft, Starbucks, and Tesla. Yesterday, it became clear that there are a far greater number of cisgender men participating than we anticipated, uh, said the chief impact officer at the Anita B. Simply put, some of you lied on your gender identity to register. Video recordings released on social media show the overwhelming presence of men. Female attendees claimed on social media that the male attendees cut the line and shoved participants. Some attendees alleged that males reserved one-on-one meetings with recruiters, then sold the time slots for $1,000. Bo Young Lee, the uh, advisory president of Anita B., released a video statement on social media saying, Many of you feel unsafe physically and psychologically. And you're feeling unheard. We tried to create a safe space. And this week we saw the outside world creep in, namely men. The Anita B. organization said that it would not prohibit male attendees due to federal anti-discrimination law. But they did attempt to bar male attendees. In-person tickets for the conference range from six hundred and forty nine to twelve hundred dollars, not including travel and lodging. It was a disappointment. But when you blur the lines, that's what you get. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, Chuck and Ashley Elliott, I used to be how to navigate large and small losses in life. Well, after a brief but predictable mainstream media freakout about the ouster of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republicans are now getting down to the business of naming their next speaker. And yes, the former President Trump has been suggested and will be nominated. He's going to Washington on Tuesday. Well, this isn't to say that the media has finished freaking out yet. Indeed, get a a load of the headline from the Washington Post. Vote to oust McCarthy is a warning sign for democracy, scholars say. The uh, subhead, a quote from one of those esteemed scholars, was even more foreboding. If you want to know what it looks like when democracy is in trouble, this is what it looks like. First, what would it uh, what would we do without scholars? Second, how rich is that full concern coming as it does from the very same democracy dies in the darkness who prefer political party voted unanimous to oust McCarthy? And third, what would the be so awful about our too big, too profligate government 
grinding to a halt for a week or so. Would it kill us to, instead of doing something, they're just doing nothing for a spell? Well, it's an interesting thought. Uh, They're telling us that by Wednesday, there'll be something like a vote or approaching a vote. And as uh, mentioned, there are a couple of members who have suggested they are going to nominate Donald Trump to be the next Speaker of the House. We'll talk more about that later in the program, but uh, the decision is looming. Well, as Kevin McCarthy has been booted from his post as House Speaker after a motion to vacate brought by the fourth hardliner, uh, Matt Gates, an unlikely nominee, has been suggested as the Speaker, former President Donald Trump. Well, the Texas Representative Troy Nels said in a statement on Tuesday, uh, his first order of business when the House reconvenes will be to nominate Donald Trump for Speaker of the House President Trump, the greatest president of my lifetime, he says, has a proven record of putting America first and will make the government great again. Representative Greg Stube followed suit in a post on X uh, on Tuesday, uh, suggesting the same. Well, the next speaker doesn't have to be a current sitting member of the House. And the former president said he'd be willing to you know, fill in for 30, 60 days, 90 days, whatever they need. Now, this in light of the other Things that are vying for his attention, a number of uh, legal challenges, as well as his presidential campaign. What's, you know, sitting in as Speaker of the House for several months. Illinois Governor Pritzker sent a letter to President Biden begging for immigration assistance and intervention at the border. Perhaps the announcement earlier today that the wall would be um, built and efforts to resume that uh, building might be a reflection of a response to not only this governor, but others who are crying for help. Democrats cry for help from the president. Well, the unhinged Manhattan College professor who threatened to chop a post reporter, uh, chop a cropped, well, reporter, uh, copped a wrist slap plea. Let's get that right. Deal in the Bronx court on Monday. Uh, Shalene Rodriguez, 48, will dodge jail time and won't even have to uh, have a criminal record if she makes it through as little as six months in therapy under the terms of her sweetheart deal with Bronx prosecutor Rodriguez, who was uh, axed from her Hunter College gig hours after she was caught on video. And this wasn't the first time, by the way, she'd engaged in such activity. She pled guilty to a count of menacing, a misdemeanor and to a harassment violation. Students for Life for America said the professor gone of the professor pro-abortion professor Shalene Rodriguez curses at pro-life students and vandalizes the table at Hunter College. And that was OK. But uh, apparently she crossed a bridge too far. Well, a small act of faith rippled across the country today, leading thousands of students to bring their Bibles to school on the first Thursday of October to pray, share the gospel and celebrate religious freedom. This year, Bring Your Bible to School Day kicked off. Uh, on um, earlier in the day, the annual event sponsored by Focus on the Family has been going strong for nearly a decade. It started with 8,000 students and grew to nearly 800,000 participants last year. And this year, they're hoping for over a million. The program manager for Bringing Your Bible to a School Day told CBN News that Focus on the Family started the event to let kids take the lead in sharing the gospel with their peers. And they have done just that. Russian soldiers fighting in Ukraine who caught uh, who were caught drinking or being insubordinate or forced into uh, Storm Z punishment squads and sent to the most dangerous parts of the front lines to face likely death. At least five of these uh, penal battalions staffed by ex-cons and um, non-compliant troops were thrown into some of the heaviest fighting in a bid to repel Kiev counteroffensive in eastern and southern Ukraine this summer. 
Reuters reported on Tuesday, citing interviews with 13 people familiar with the matter. Storm fighters, they're just meat, said one regular soldier from Russia. Russian state-controlled media has reported that Storm Z squads exist, that they took part in intense battles, and some of their members received medals for bravery if they survived. But it hasn't disclosed how they are formed or the losses they take. One fighter with a conviction for theft who was recruited from prison said all but 15 of the 120 men in his unit embedded in the 237th Regiment uh, were killed or wounded in fighting near Bakhmut in June. The squad also combined convicts who volunteered to fight in exchange for a promise of a pardon with regular soldiers being punished for disciplinary breaches, the people interviewed said of the uh, of the setup. Well, the hottest September ever. Well, it's time to panic. The world is on fire. At least that's what we were told. That's essentially the message from The Washington Post with an article titled September Shattered Global Heat Record and by a uh, record margin where the Post says initial analysis revealed that global temperatures for the month of September surged far above previous records, even further than what scientists seem uh, said seemed like astonishing increases in July and August. Well, the data found that September was roughly 0.88 degrees Celsius above 1991 to 2020 temperature levels. To press the panic button even harder, the Post states the planet's temperature reached its warmest level in modern record and probably in thousands of years. Well, climate scientist Zika Hausenfeather, uh, he called the September temperatures absolutely gobsmackingly bananas. Well, this report from the Post is likely just the first in what will be a litany of stories ringing the alarm bells over the climate crisis, all in search of a particular solution. 0.88 degrees Celsius above the previous decade. Well, LaFonza Butler has been sworn in. She's uh, filling Dianne Feinstein's Senate seat. A judge imposed a gag order in the Trump's new uh, New York civil fraud trial after the former president posted about a court clerk and President Biden extended nine billion dollars more of student debt relief to one hundred and twenty five thousand borrowers. And of course, that will be shifted to taxpayers who didn't benefit from those loans. The federal debt increased by two point two trillion dollars in fiscal year 2020. And the FBI is reportedly probing a Christian faith group that counts Catholic Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett as a member, months after Republicans accused the agency of targeting Catholics. The agency has interviewed several people who claim they were abused by members of the group, People of Praise, sources told The Guardian. Barrett, who was elevated to the Supreme Court by former President Donald Trump, has been a member of the South Bend, Indiana group based, uh, Indiana-based group for decades. It's not clear whether the agency has launched a full investigation or is just conducting interviews. Gavin Newsom repealed a California law that censored doctors giving COVID-19 care. And FEMA will send a loud emergency alert and did to your phone, television and radio yesterday. Don't worry, it was just a test. Now, I hadn't anticipated it. It was rather peculiar, but it happened to everyone. Former President Trump said the Biden administration is only citing the immediate need to build a border wall because President Biden is watching the United States be invaded by illegal immigrants, warning that terrorists are already inside the country. Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas on Wednesday said there was an acute and immediate need to waive dozens of federal laws in order to build a border wall in South, South Texas, where illegal migration has surged. 
DHS justified the move due to high illegal entry. More than 245,000 migrant encounters have been recorded in the Rio Grande Valley sector this year. We're going to take a break. We'll be back to finish our look at uh, the headlines. And coming up in the next hour, Chuck and Ashley Elliott, I used to be how to navigate large and small losses in life. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. A reminder coming up in the next hour, Chuck and Ashley Elliott, I used to be. They'll talk about how to navigate large and small losses. Well, former President Trump said that uh, Biden administration is only citing the immediate need to build a border wall because President Biden is watching the United States be invaded. And the president has nominated Hampton Dellinger, who previously worked alongside Hunter Biden at a law firm involved with energy company Burisma Holdings to serve as special counsel. The White House announced the move in a Tuesday press release as the term of Henry Kerner, the position's current occupant, expires. The Office of Special Counsel is primarily responsible for safeguarding the merit system by protecting federal employees and applicants from prohibited personnel practices, especially reprisal for whistleblowers. Its uh, website states, well, the president previously nominated Dellinger as an assistant attorney general overseeing the Justice Department's Office of Legal Policy, a position that he'd held between October of 21 and June of this year. Dellinger had also previously donated to Biden's candidacy and will not, as special counsel, have any connection with uh, Hunter Biden and the ongoing investigation. President Biden has nominated um, him to serve that uh, post unrelated. The House impeachment inquiry against President Biden will continue full steam ahead with further action expected in the coming days, despite the uncertainty surrounding who will take the helm as Speaker of the House following the ouster of Representative McCarthy. Uh, McCarthy, who served as the Speaker of the House from late January through October, a very short stint, and is the first in U.S. history to have been voted to be removed from the post, supported the uh, the launch of an impeachment inquiry against the president last month after months of GOP-led investigations into his family's business dealings and whether he was involved. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan, Ohio uh, from Ohio, House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer, um, and out of Kentucky, and the House Ways and Means Committee Chair Jason Smith from Missouri were tasked by McCarthy with leading the impeachment inquiry, but even with him ousted, their investigations are expected to continue full steam ahead, a senior Judiciary Committee aide pronounced. Well, the head of the House Homeland Security Committee says Republican efforts to secure the southern border are certainly not going to stop now, despite the ongoing chaos in the GOP caucus over the removal of Kevin McCarthy as Speaker. Chairman Mark Green from Tennessee, in a statement, uh, noted the passage of the Secure Border Act, known as H.R. 2, earlier this year, as well as the escalating crisis at the border. The fight to secure our border didn't stop when the House passed House Resolution 2, and it's certainly not going to stop now, Green wrote. Things have only gotten worse at the southern border as monthly encounters have continued to rise since June, and they're only going to continue to spiral given the host of mass parole and other catch-and-release programs Secretary Mayorkas has put into place. Now, that might may be changing given some of the challenges the administration is um, is administering. In the past year alone, medical centers across the five boroughs in New York have received nearly 30,000 visits from undocumented migrants seeking medical care. About 300 new babies have been born to moms during that period, most at Bellevue Hospital in Manhattan, which has seen one quarter of the overall migrant visits. 
Randy Retkin, the director of Legal Health, a division of the New York Legal Assistance Group, runs a taxpayer-funded legal clinic in Bellevue Hospital where patients of all backgrounds are able to access legal services if they are referred by medical health providers. Well, now most of the clients she sees are not uh, citizens, some are uh, some of whom are in need of life-saving care. Retkin said the clinic has been inundated with requests from migrants needing help with organ transplants, cancer treatment, putting a strain on the system. Resources are overwhelmed across public hospitals in New York City, where 25 percent of all patients are now um, those who have come into the country unlawfully. Illinois Governor Pritzker sent a letter to the president begging for immigration assistance and intervention at the border. Uh, Illinois Governor Pritzker sent that letter calling for more action to be done to address the waves of migrants who are continuing to cross the the border, dealing yet another narrative blow to the administration. The uh, president has falsely claimed great progress has been made to address the border crisis, but illegal crossing uh, has uh, reached historic heights despite the federal government opening up more well legal pathways to enter the country. In his letter the president to the president, Pritzker admitted being a sanctuary state, and it's resulted in thousands of people coming from the southern border to Illinois, resulting in a strain on resources, particularly in Chicago. After New York, Illinois is now under pressure due to migrant uh, the migrant crisis. The federal government's lack of intervention and coordination at the border has created an untenable situation for Illinois, Governor Pritzker wrote in his letter to the president. Well, the World Aquatics is scrapping their open category made for trans athletes after no registrations. Well, the issue of men who believe they are transgender competing in women's sports was pushed to the forefront when uh, Willa Leah Thomas competed on the women's swim team at the University of Pennsylvania after competing on the men's team for three years. Um, He was very successful, but he prevented many women from actually competing, gaining scholarships and moving forward. The controversy continues and the new category that was designed to try to mitigate the problem apparently has not garnered enough attention uh, from trans uh, identifying men to make it a category worth keeping. Well, the prime minister in UK Uh, Sunak is looking to phase out cigarette smoking in the country by raising the legal age by one year every year. Well, the uh, the prime minister on Wednesday proposed raising the legal age that people in England can buy cigarettes by one year every year until it's illegal for the whole population. And smoking hopefully will be gradually phased out among young people. Well, setting out his plan at the annual Conservative Party conference, Sunak said he wanted to stop teenagers taking up cigarettes in the first place and repeated yearly increases in the age of sale um, uh, law would mean a 14-year-old today will never legally be sold a cigarette. Well, legally, anyway. It's currently illegal for anyone to sell cigarettes or tobacco products to people under 18 years of age throughout the U.K. The Prime Minister says the U.K. will raise the smoking age, and that will hopefully resolve the issue. Fifty-five Chinese sailors are presumed dead after springing uh, traps meant for U.S. and British submarines. Well, the U.S. um, 55 uh, Chinese sailors are feared dead after their nuclear submarine apparently got caught in a trap intended to ensnare British service uh, vessels in the Yellow Sea. According to a secret U.K. report, the seamen died following a catastrophic failure of the submarine's oxygen system, which poisoned the crew. 
The captain of the Chinese PLA Navy submarine is understood to be among the deceased, as were 21 other officers. Officially, China has denied the incident took place at all. It also appears that the system, um, designed again to entrap vessels from other countries, the U.S. and U.K. in particular, is not functioning. Well, last week, President Biden's um, German shepherd commander bit a Secret Service agent. Well, that marked the 11th, yes, the 11th time that Commander had bitten one of the agents and other Secret Service officers who guard the president. Well, some of the attacks left wounds requiring medical attention, and at least one required hospital care for Commander's victim. Well, obviously, the dog should have been removed from the White House a long time ago. What other workplace would allow a dog, even the boss's dog, to remain after biting at least 11 people? At least, because there are 11 known incidents, but it's not clear that all the incidents are known. Well, the situation is actually a scandal, and it reflects badly on the owners, who apparently don't care that the dog repeatedly attacks people that are there to protect him. Well, the public wouldn't know about this had it not been for a conservative legal group, Judicial Watch, not filing a federal Freedom of Information Act lawsuit seeking Secret Service email and other records. Well, among the documents handed over was an email from number three in 2022 that said commander had bitten a uniformed division officer two times. I'm not sure if that's part of the 11, if that's one or two, um, but bit the officer in the thigh and the upper right arm. After being bitten twice, the officer used a steel cart to shield himself from the attack dog. Then, according to the emails, White House Medical treated the officer to make the decision um, and made the decision to have the officer transported to the hospital. Well, in case anyone thinks the president and first lady Jill don't know what's happening, consider the email that was sent um, to them with the information. Well, it happened 11 times in my my last count, 12. We'll talk about it more uh, later in the program, but the commander, the dog, is no more. Well, he's still around. He's just not at the White House. Let's clarify that. Well, coming up after news, says Chuck and Ashley Elliott, I used to be. How to Navigate Large and Small Losses in Life. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. When a person suffers a loss, they enter the realm of used to be. They used to be married. They used to be employed. They used to be pregnant, secure, healthy, sober, or thin. They used to be a son or daughter, a brother or sister, a mother or a father, And in that used-to-be space, there is deep emptiness, loneliness, and sorrow. It's a place they dwell for a while, but it's not a place they were meant to remain. Well, in the book, I Used to Be, How to Navigate Large and Small Losses in Life and Find Your Path Forward, Pastor Chuck Elliott and Counselor Ashley Elliott, husband and wife, they help readers explore the unseen elements of their grief and build new thinking patterns that will result in true healing and growth. The Elliots share biblical advice and proven mental health techniques to help readers learn how to be fully, how to fully feel and face their grief, to hold on to their faith and develop healthy ways to see themselves, their life and their loved ones. In the book, I used to be, they will help readers process pain, heal traumatic events and discover purpose and move forward. Well, 
I'm so delighted to have with us uh, Chuck and Ashley Elliott. They're frequent speakers and popular workshop leaders with a passion to help people have better than average relationships. They serve as advisory board members for the AACC's International Christian Coaching Association. In addition to speaking and writing, Chuck is a pastor at Bethel Church in Evansville, Indiana. Ashley is a licensed counselor at Auxilian Psychological Services. And we are delighted to have the pair of them with us today to talk about their book, I Used to Be, How to Navigate Large and Small Losses in Life and Find Your Path Forward. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having us. We're excited to be here. Yeah, hey. Well, I'm delighted to have you. This is such an important book because all of us at some point in life are going to experience loss, large or small, and helping to navigate that or to help others that we know and love navigate through losses is a a challenge for all of us. Tell us a little bit about your story and what inspired you to write I Used to Be? Because I get the impression, as our readers, our listeners might, that you used to be in fill in the blank. Yeah, Chuck and I used to be quite a few things, and we do share some of them in yes. the book. And we also share stories of other people. One of the things we used to be, we used to be, I personally used to be pregnant, but we used to be expecting children, and we faced loss in 2015, 16, and 17. And so it was just a tough series of years for us. Yeah, and we had um, various other things. We've lost family members, loved ones, and had breaks in trust as well in our relationship, things that happened even before we got married, and things we had to overcome, things we had to work through. Now, this is a something that we all experience in life. How well do we generally on our own make it through loss intact and uh, moving forward? Is it common for us to stumble at this juncture in life? Yeah, certainly. I think a lot of times we will just barrel through, and at least mm-hmm. that was my defense mm-hmm. mechanism. We just want to keep going. We don't really want to talk about it. We'll just go to work. We'll do the things. Mm-hmm. And we might operate on autopilot, but there are some relational things that we do, some coping mechanisms that we tend to lean toward that may or may not set us up for success in our relationships, at work, at home, and with our relationship with God. And you've probably seen this too, that people just wait until things get better. A lot of times in relationships, Um, Sometimes with our own health, with things at work, if it's really not going so well, we don't want to have conversations, we don't want to work on things, we just wait until things get better. Now, time by itself does not necessarily heal things. It's what you do with that time that makes an impact, because if you spend years avoiding a wound or years avoiding a broken bone, uh, it's not going to be better, it's probably going to be worse. And, And that's some of the things that we found with working with people. You divide your book up into several parts. One, seeing myself, seeing my world, seeing my loved ones, reframing grief, seeing grief from a new perspective, and moving forward, in which you walk your readers through the various stages of uh, confronting what you used to be in a way that is productive. Uh, You're incredibly vulnerable in the book about your own losses, and you've mentioned already the miscarriages that the two of you together experienced. How did you move forward and trust God despite these painful circumstances? It could have been quite easy to turn and blame God or to simply stay stuck Mm -hmm. in your grief. How did you move forward? One of the first things we had to do is we had to just admit that it was okay to not be okay and that it hurt and we could name what it is that we were missing. When we lost those little ones to miscarriage in those years, we had to say, man, we miss the fact that we're not pregnant right now, and that hurt, and kind of had to look at that sting and look at that hurt. Um, Also acknowledging that God wants to be in the middle of our 
dark places, our sad places, the places that we don't often want to invite him into the middle of. He wants to be there just as much as he wants to be in the places when you're maybe on the front row worshiping at church. And when we looked to the pages of Scripture, we saw that God really meets with people in all kinds of situations. And I think sometimes I would feel frustrated or disappointed because Mm. I would read that God says he's near to the brokenhearted, but I didn't feel him near. And so was there something wrong with me or is this true? I I know I believed and I still believe at a deep level that that God's word is true, but I would have those moments where just be like, oh no, what if all of this is a sham? And and it Mm. would only come in my negative space. It was the negative space of grief. And so I continued to go to God's word. I went to God's word because I have seen in every situation that I've gone through in my life that God's word has held true and has given me stability. And so, yeah, I looked at accounts in scripture like, well, Look at Job. Job went through a lot, but at the end, we see that God did speak, even though he had some times of silence. We see the same thing with David and a lot of other people in Scripture. Even Jesus, he had that moment where he says, God, why have you abandoned me? And so we know that God doesn't truly abandon people, but that a lot of people feel that way. So we took comfort from what we saw in Scripture, even though we acknowledge that we felt differently than what we felt we should have as Mm -hmm. leaders. Mm -hmm. That's That's so important because I think when we're in midst of a grief, oftentimes we are looking to hear from God's comforting voice and we, we're not discerning that. And your experience and what you've encouraged us to consider going to God's word is a way for us to deal with what from our vantage point seems like God's withdrawal or silence when in fact he is always at work. What are some of the common ways that grief lies to us? And you write about that in the book. How can we overcome um, uh, in, in God's word when, when grief is lying to us about Uh, him and about ourselves. Hmm. We found that one of the biggest lies is that grief tells you that you're alone. You're alone, that God doesn't see you. You're alone, that nobody else has felt what it is that you're feeling. You're alone, that if you reached out to a family member or to a friend, they wouldn't respond. And it's a lie. It's a lie that we're alone. And no, it may not be that somebody that you reach out to has exactly experienced the exact kind of loss that you have, but it doesn't mean that you have to walk through it alone. And community can be one of the things that we feel really resistant to reaching out to, but one of the things that we need the most. That's one of the biggest lies. And I think that grief tells us that isolation is better. Mm. I think sometimes we'll physically isolate and other times we will emotionally isolate if we don't feel like we can get to a place where we're completely by ourselves. But we do that oftentimes to meet our needs. So we look at the function and the dysfunction and like, okay, there's something functional, something good in every bad thing that we do. So if someone is isolating, we're doing it for good reason. So let's just lean in and look at why we're doing what we're doing and especially bringing that to God so that we can have insight. And so we isolate because we want to feel better or we worry that we're going to make things worse. And so grief lies to us in a number of ways. But as we look a little bit more beneath the surface, we can expose those lies and replace them with God's truth. Absolutely. One One of the things I think this book is very useful for is helping those of us who are looking on or coming alongside those who grieve, who used to be, and we're not quite sure what we should do. And our tendency is to withdraw because we don't want to say or do the wrong thing. 
This book, I Used to Be, helps us to better understand those who are in the process of grief and perhaps prepare for the next bout that we may in our own lives experience as well. What would you say to those who are concerned about a loved one, a friend, a coworker who's in the midst of grief and they're not quite sure where to begin? How can this book help them? Well, your presence means a lot just when you're with people. And and we talk about this in the book that, you know what, you're not going to say the absolutely most perfect thing to make all the pain go away. Sometimes when people try to comfort others after they've experienced a loss, they'll say something to maybe reduce the pain or take the sting away. And that's not always what happens. Sometimes it makes the sting a little bit worse. We specifically tell people that when you, uh, you've probably seen this or experienced it after, after somebody goes through a loss or say, well, just call me if you need anything. That doesn't often get a lot of return phone calls or mm-hmm. text messages. But if you say something specific, it was like, hey, um, I was wanting to do something for you. Maybe if the person um, has kiddos, can I watch the kids while you and maybe another friend or your spouse go out to dinner? Can I come to your house and clean? Can I pay for somebody to come clean your house? What would something be? Like, Give some options. Do something that's specific because the blanket, um, I'm there for you while it is well-intended and it can be comforting, it may not be meeting the need that they have. Yeah. We're talking this afternoon with the uh, co-authors of a wonderful book, I Used to Be, How to Navigate Large and Small Losses in Life and Find Your Path Forward. Chuck and Ashley Elliott, we're going to continue our conversation in a moment, but we do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we're continuing a conversation with Pastor Chuck and Ashley Elliott. Uh, pastor Chuck is just that, a pastor. Ashley is a licensed counselor, and they are the co-authors of I Used to Be, How to Navigate Loss and Small Losses, or rather Large and Small Losses in Life, and Find Your Path Forward. It's a great book to help you navigate what can be a very difficult season that you may find some difficulty getting out of. Now, one of the things that you write about is mental stability activities. Um, you ask your readers to complete um, several mental stability activities in the book. What are they and how does that help us through uh, time of loss? So much when we go through hard times, it may not even be a loss, but if it is just a setback in life, we will find that we have an identity that's shaken. So I thought I was all that, or I thought that I was strong. And now I'm realizing, oh, not so much. Maybe not so much. So it can knock our stability. And so we do a pretty simple exercise where we invite people to draw like a T-chart. So on one side of a piece of paper, you would write mental stability. And on the other side, you'd write mental instability. And then we take people through a series of of prompts basically, but have them think about their, their stability. When you're at your best, this would be when you're most mentally stable. Just think about your daily habits. What do you eat? Do you exercise? Do you do fast food or do you cook? You know, whenever you're in, in the most positive space, when you're the most mentally stable, there are some shifts. So then we look at our, our worst state, whenever we're most mentally unstable and we look at those same things. So do we exercise more when we're in a negative space or in a positive space? Do we you know, change our habits with our relationships? Do we 
end up being tardy at work or have different things. So we give people these prompts to help them think about the basics. And in our counseling and coaching practices, we will ask people some of these questions. And so this is something that we've used and we're thankful to be able to put some of our resources that Mm -hmm. we use in the counseling and coaching practice into the book to help people so that they can get help right then. And so the challenge is then when you're feeling unstable, you'll have this exercise to remind you like, oh, yeah, I typically would wear a sweatshirt to work today because I kind of feel grumpy. Well, let me not do that. Let me you know, try to dress for the mood that I want or let me eat for the mood that I want or go ahead and exercise. Let me choose one stabilizing behavior and see if it starts to make a difference in our lives. Mm, that's so good. I know that uh, oftentimes we're surprised by anger in the midst of our grief, at grief as we're facing loss. How common is it that anger um, pops up in the middle of a loss or grief. And how you write about an anger wall. Can you explain what that is and how we can get through this, uh, this anger that we might experience? Anger happens a lot. And the thing is, it comes in and it masks other emotions that you're feeling. So I can tell you that one of the the things that I dealt with was anger whenever we lost our little ones, uh, miscarriage. And I was feeling hurt. I was feeling alone. I was feeling like a failure. But I felt more powerful when I was angry. And that's kind of like what you said with the anger wall. So if I build this wall that looks like anger, it looks powerful. It looks strong. It's a wall that's going to protect me from other people, other thoughts, other feelings, other emotions. But if we take out the bricks of that wall, we can see underneath that brick that we pull out that had anger written on it. We have lonely written on it. And if we pull out another brick that had anger on it, maybe we feel discarded. We feel like invisible. We feel unseen. And when you start taking down that wall of anger, you see what's underneath it. And sometimes anger can be good because it pushes us to deal with things that we need to deal with. Um, God designed anger and emotions, but it's like, what are we going to do with it? Um, Something Ashley says often that I really like is she says, emotions are teachers. So it can teach you something about what it is that's going on and what's underneath it. And if you're curious, then it can often lead to some healing. And everybody's anger wall would look a little bit different. Mm, Sometimes yeah. we would have you know, jealousy or rage or you know, something else underneath. And there might be more than just one emotion. There might be a cluster or there might be one specific scenario that really, you know, is driving that anger. And so I think that understanding it's complex. It's not just super simple that we're, oh, let's just remove a brick and we'll understand ourselves completely. Mm-hmm. But giving ourselves permission to see we are complex, but that anger is doing something for us. There's the function and the dysfunction of, of anger, right? It's serving us in some way. And that's why the Bible says, be angry and do not sin because we can. And I think we forget that, that there is the opportunity to be angry about something and not necessarily let it cause us to explode. I think the explosion comes from pushing away or stuffing those emotions. How does grief impact our intimate relationships? And do we always, when we're in the midst of it, recognize that? And are we responsible for somehow altering how that those relationships are impacted. I certainly think we don't always realize how much our relationships are affected by our grief. And I recall a story of a friend of mine who said that she didn't get help with her grief until someone at work called her into the other room and said, okay, you just exploded again and you're biting everybody's heads off. 
you got to go to a group. I'm going to go with you. And so she finally said, fine, I'll get help. And I think that sometimes it is one person that really needs some comfort, some support to help them, you know, get a counselor, go to a pastor, revisit church, get in the Bible, whatever it is that they need. But that complexity of the relationship is important. And so I think understanding, you know, if you have a kid that's just smarting off all the time, like there's some other things beneath it. If you have a spouse who's depressed, like there's some reasons behind it. Are they Mm -hmm. grieving something? Are they upset about something? And understanding that, that there's a lot of complexity to our relationships can help us. Ashley and I for sure didn't do it perfect, but I saw many opportunities where, okay, so through some of the grief and losses and things that Ashley and I have been through, we had opportunities to push each other away or to Mm -hmm. draw closer. And um, unfortunately, research shows that um, after miscarriages and other tragedies, many times divorce rate goes up and then the quality of the relationship goes down. So you can see when two people are hurting, if they're not communicating and putting in the hard work, then it can often really be damaging to a relationship. How important is being vulnerable? Hmm. That's a tough question. It's really important. important. It's not important. No one needs it. I don't want to talk about that. We talk about, no, I'm tapping out. Okay. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's really important. And it's, uh, man, sometimes it just feels icky and you feel like you have just this like emotional hangover after you do it. And vulnerability is something that, you know, there's strength on the other side of it, but it makes you feel really weak in the process. And uh, I've, continued to work on it that probably daily yeah there's so many practical uh, elements to your book uh, we won't be able to cover them all but i did want to talk about in chapter nine you write about the need to develop new skills to face loss now some of us need to think about those skills before it comes some of us are in the midst of it and others may be looking back on a loss that they might not have handled as well as uh, in retrospect they would have liked to have handled it. What are some of the examples of skills that you can learn uh, about and uh, develop in the midst of grief? Certainly the communication skill is one of the the bigger things, but I think self-awareness is, is probably the biggest theme that we take people throughout the book, because if we know how to help ourselves. If we take that oxygen mask to ourselves, we will be able to then take that oxygen mask to other people and help them. And so we do teach the three A's to change in the book. And so one of the things that we take people through is this process of increasing their awareness. So maybe it would be, I'm I'm aware that I'm angry at work. So, okay, let's be aware. Well, how long has this happened? And so we're, we're, taking some time to be aware. And then we assess, okay, well, what have I done in the past? What has worked and what hasn't worked? And then we're going to brainstorm options to try in the future. So there's three steps with that assessment process. We're going to check and see what we've tried that's worked, what hasn't worked. And then we're going to check for more options in the past in the, in the future. And then that third step is to act. So it's aware, assess and act. And we're going to continue to go through this process over and over again. So we're learning about ourselves and we're trying to be in a relationship. We're trying to keep working or trying to do the things, but we're going to continue acting and, and hopefully seeing some good results, but also understanding that we're not perfect. So it could take some time for us to keep processing and working through it. Any final words of encouragement for those who are in the midst of uh, a life where they used to be and learning to cope with the new normal? Hmm. We tell people that God sees you. 
He sees you right where you are mm. in the midst of pain, in the midst of this struggle. And just because it hurts, it doesn't mean that you're broken and there isn't a path to move forward. And we tell people that, you know what, um, we don't have a magic wand and they don't likely do either. And they can't go back and change what it is that they lost or who it is that they lost and can't get that back. But what they can do is they can continue to build and see what does it look like to take steps to move forward. And it's not just about them, because when they do this work, and it is work, it is hard work, they're going to leave a legacy that they're proud of. They're going to have stronger relationships. Someone's going to see them in the way that they continue to move forward and honor God. Someone's going to see them the way Mm -hmm. that they continue to have hope. Someone's going to see them how they have strength when nobody else knew how they could do it. And it's powerful. That is so good. Once again, we're talking with Chuck and Ashley Elliott pastor and counselor. Their book is titled, I Used to Be, How to Navigate Large and Small Losses in Life and Find Your Path Forward. What's the best way for our listeners to connect with you and to find your book? You can find us at chuckandashley.com. Our book is sold everywhere that books are sold. Also, you can get the audio version. It's a great way to get it. Well, I thank you both so much for being with us today. But more than that, I thank you for the book that I think will help many cope with what used to be and to move forward into what God has for the future. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. It's been an honor. God bless. Well, for our Seattle listeners, it is a good night. Do want to thank uh, our engineer in the Seattle area for uh, doing all that he does. Pedro Barnes, thank you so much. For Oregon listeners, we're going to continue, so stay with us. This is The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, he's been the most prolific fundraiser in House Republican history. The unprecedented ouster this week of Speaker Kevin McCarthy raises plenty of question marks for the House GOP as it aims to hold its uh, pretty, pretty fragile majority in the chamber in the 2024 elections. It will be 100 percent um, characterized as a setback, predicted a Republican in McCarthy's political orbit who asked to remain anonymous to speak more freely. A GOP strategist involved in congressional races who asked for anonymity warned that House Republicans are going to need to pick up the pieces quickly of what was the most impressive fundraising organization we have seen in politics if they want to be successful in 2024. So there's more at stake than just shuffling the chairs. The Speaker's removal has already caused a ripple in the GOP's fundraising effort. The National Republican Congressional Committee, the main fundraising arm of the House GOP, is going to postpone a fall gala that was scheduled for next week that McCarthy was slated to headline. Organizers said Republicans needed to focus on electing a new speaker instead. McCarthy, a former state lawmaker from California, was first elected to the House 17 years ago and who's been in GOP leadership in the chamber since 2009, long had a reputation as the top Republican fundraiser even before he became speaker. As minority leader, he helped the party defy expectations in 2020 elections. He took... A big bite out of Democrats' House majority, despite Democrats winning the White House. He personally hauled in $150 million in the last election cycle to help Republicans win back the House majority. So this is no small thing that he is ousted and what his role will be and how uh, and whether he fundraises will make a big difference, not just for his political future, but for the party in general. Meanwhile, former President Trump told Fox News Digital that he would accept a short term role as Speaker of the House of Representatives to serve as a unifier for the Republican Party until lawmakers reach a decision on who should take on the post. 
Representative McCarthy was removed as the speaker, as I've just mentioned. Um, and Matt Gates, uh, who introduced the measure against him, known as the motion to vacate, accusing him of breaking promises he made to win the speaker's gavel in January, has nominated the president. Uh, and by the way, you don't have to be a sitting member of the House in order to be the Speaker of the House. It's always been the case, but it doesn't require you to be a member of the House. I have been asked to speak as uh, a unifier because I have so many friends in Congress, Trump said, speaking to Fox News Digital. If they didn't, don't get the vote, they have asked me if I would consider taking the speakership until they get somebody longer term because I am running for president. So in addition to dealing with his, with his legal issues, he is uh, making himself available to sit in as the Speaker of the House and then to run a political campaign. The president went on, the former president went on to say they have asked me if I would take it for a short period of time for the party until they come to a conclusion. I'm not doing it because I want to. I will do it if necessary, should they not be able to make their decision. Well, my guess is they will make a decision mid next week. The former president didn't specify who had asked him, although a number of GOP lawmakers have said he is their preference for speaker, which begs the question, do they not see him as the next president? Since McCarthy's ouster, both House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jordan and House Minority Whip Scalise have announced their bids to run for speaker. My guess is one of the two of them will be. The former president, he stressed that if Republicans can't come to a consensus, he would take the speakership for a short 30, 60, 90 day period. I would only do it for the party, he said, stressing that his focus is on his presidential campaign. Well, back in January, as the House was uh, House considered who should become the speaker after Republicans took the majority of the chamber. Matt Gates at the time opted not to vote for McCarthy or Representative Byron Donalds, who was floated um, as an option but instead for Trump, when Gates' name was called during the seventh round of voting, and by the way, there were 15 of them, he responded, Donald Trump. Meanwhile, uh, then, uh, well, candidate Trump, then um, unseated Trump, uh, said that he uh, was not available for the position. He told Fox News Digital most recently that he'll visit Washington, D.C. on Tuesday and plans to be on Capitol Hill to speak with members of the House Republican conferences as they consider who will become the next speaker. As for whom he would support for speaker, the former president didn't comment. A source familiar, though, said that he is very close to Jordan. He's been very complimentary of him, at least for now. Uh, one never knows from one moment to the next. And has always had a great relationship with him, the sources said. Trump also has a great relationship with Scalise, so we'll see what actually happens. But... That's the latest political scuttlebutt on the next speaker. In other news, a string of controversial plea deals from a Minneapolis district um, attorney has been met by outrage or with outrage by the families of murder victims and sparked concern from legal experts who say the move could exacerbate crime. The types of plea deals offered in this county by the uh, attorney general, Mary Moriarty, is inconsistent with the demands of justice. Tim Rosenberg, a Bradley fellow at Stanford's Constitutional Law Center, said the families of victims of crime told the Star Tribune earlier in the week that the plea deals indicate a pattern where they are told prosecutors want probation instead of prison sentences. They said they feel re-traumatized by the court proceedings and suggested prosecutors tend to advocate more for the defendant than for the victim. 
Business executives and consumer experts largely believe in it is increasingly unpopular for American businesses to take a public stance on current events because it's polarized and alienated the, the, the country. In recent years, sports teams, clothing brands, beverage companies, food labels, corporate giants, they've weighed in on some of the country's most polarizing public policy debates. However, most Americans don't want businesses to inject their opinions on the most contentious political and social issues. And that's according to a new poll conducted by Gallup and Bentley University. Well, following the historic removal of Speaker McCarthy, led by Matt Gates and accomplished by um, accomplished with the Democrat support, House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan officially threw his hat into the ring for consideration, as has uh, Representative Scalise. Uh, according to Speaker Pro Tempore Patrick McHenry, the House GOP will hold a candidate forum on Tuesday and begin the work of electing the next Speaker of the House next Wednesday. And as mentioned, former President Trump plans on visiting Washington on Tuesday. The Los Angeles School District will celebrate National Coming Out Day all next week. Only 47% of students meet English language standards in L.A. and 33% meet math standards, but that doesn't matter. That's all students um, in in L.A. For black students, the numbers are more dismal. 31% for English language standards, 17% for math. Well, that's why it's so important that a week is dedicated to teaching about alphabet ideology. Perhaps it doesn't matter, though, since the curriculum... Um, is for elementary school students, you know, ages 6 to 10 years old. Perhaps they need this even more than learning how to read or do math, you know, for the future. Why focus on reading and math when you can spend time educating kids about alphabet people? You have to keep your priorities straight, and apparently that's what they're going to do in L.A. It's sort of a sad state of affairs. The Fifth Circuit Court of, uh, of Appeals has ruled the President Biden cannot censor speech on social media platforms. Now, you might be saying, well, didn't they already say that? Well, it looks like another federal court doesn't support the idea that Homeland Security writ includes America's cognitive infrastructure. In a unanimous ruling yesterday, the Fifth Circuit expanded bars on the, uh, uh, the Biden administration's Big Brother censorship activities, blocking the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, from any speech uh, policy or policing, if you will, communication with a private sector media platform. The lawsuit, again, the Biden administration, was originally filed by former Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt, who is now Republican U.S. Senator. When the administration was ordered to stop contacting social media companies earlier this year, the White House disagreed with the opinion and argued it was necessary for the federal government to censor speech online. So in July, the judge on the case called the administration's behavior the most massive attack against free speech in United States history. You probably didn't read about it because the mainstream media doesn't really cover unflattering news about the administration. Uh, We've just obtained an injunction against CISA, the AG, Andrew Bailey says, an agency within the Department of Homeland Security that blocks them from violating the First Amendment rights of millions of Americans. The order also applies to the White House, the Surgeon General, the CDC, and the FBI. Well, healthcare workers began to strike outside Kaiser Permanente hospitals. Picketing began Wednesday at Kaiser Permanente hospitals as some 75,000 healthcare workers went on strike in Virginia, California, and three other states over wages and staffing shortages. Doctors are not participating, and Kaiser says its hospitals, including in emergency rooms, will remain open during the picketing. 
Unions representing Kaiser workers in August asked for a $25 an hour minimum wage, as well as increase of 7% every year in the first two years and 6.25% each year in the two years afterward. They say understaffing is boosting the hospital system's profits, but hurting patients and executives have been bargaining in bad faith during the negotiations. We'll follow the developments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell are moving forward on a major Ukraine aid package, even as there's a very good chance the next speaker is even less receptive than Kevin McCarthy was. Majority Leader Schumer said he'd spoken specifically to McConnell about the issue and added, we'll work together to get a big package done. Ukraine was in the Senate's bipartisan spending proposal last week, but was ultimately left out of the eventual stopgap government funding law approved over the weekend. At the moment, the Biden administration doesn't even have the transfer authority it needs to move assets around in Ukraine. That was also left out of the stopgap bill and now can't be approved without a House leader. And again, midweek is when we're told we might expect a new leader in the House. An ADP report says job growth slowed to 89,000 in September. Private payroll growth uh, tailed off, or rather trailed off sharply in September, according to ADP. A report on Wednesday that provides a counterweight to other signs that the labor market is still running strong. The payroll processing firm said job growth totaled just $89,000 for the 89,000 rather for the month, down from an upwardly uh, revised 180,000 in August and below the 160,000 estimate from economists polled by Dow Jones. Perhaps more importantly, the report provides some sign that an historically tight labor market could be loosening and giving the Federal Reserve some incentive to stop raising interest rates. ADP also said annual wage growth slowed to 5.9 percent, the 12th consecutive month, monthly decline. Well, New York Governor Hochul announced 18,000 new jobs available for those in the country illegally. Well, the move only incentivizes uh, illegal immigration to New York. Democrat uh, New York Mayor Hochul announced the 18,000 new jobs for eligible asylum seekers and migrants as New York City faces an influx of more than 125,000 people. Hochul said the state's Department of Labor has identified more than 18,000 private sector job openings at 379 companies across the state who have identified roles that could be filled by individuals with legal work status. About 24 percent of the job openings are in accommodation and food service with 90 businesses. Another 21 percent of the openings are in health care and social assistance with 79 businesses. Manufacturing accounts for 10 percent of the openings with 38 businesses and administrative support accounts for 8 percent with 29 businesses. The city has already spent more than one point two billion dollars on the migrants and is projected to spend up to $5 billion, which has sparked tension between New York's Democratic leaders and the Biden administration, with the governor and mayor calling for more federal help with the migrant crisis. Well, pro-lifers long ago identified Planned Parenthood as not only merely abortion advocates and providers, but in fact practitioners of an abortion industry. Abortion for Planned Parenthood is about money. Similarly, with the transgender crusade, Planned Parenthood has been one of the leading advocates promoting the gender bending if, of uh, not only adults, but especially of children. Transing the kids 
is a growing revenue opportunity for Planned Parenthood. And the more children are convinced that they are gender dysphoric, the larger the revenue stream for Planned Parenthood, which is why there is an increasing number of examples of children being diagnosed with gender dysphoria after just one visit to Planned Parenthood and almost immediately put on gender transition train. In fact, for some Planned Parenthood clinics, gender-bending services make up almost a fifth of their clientele, and these are repeat customers, which equates to more revenue. Well, the first dog, Commander, he got the boot. Joe Biden's German Shepherd, Commander, who has bitten White House staff at least 12 times, has been removed from the residence. In announcing the dog's removal, a White House official stated, The president and first lady care deeply about the safety of those who work at the White House and those who protect them every day. Of course, it took 11 bites, rather 12 bites for them to come to that conclusion. The official added they remain grateful for the patience and support of the U.S. Secret Service and all involved. As they continue to work through solutions, commander is not presently on White House campus grounds. While next steps are being evaluated. Next up for removal. Well, there's an election coming up. We'll see what happens next. Well, Donald Trump's New York fraud trial grew testy on day three. The State Department unveiled the official portrait of Hillary Clinton. 50,000 Venezuelans illegally crossed the U.S. border last month, shattering the previous record. A Florida law allowing the death penalty for child rapists has gone into effect. And Starbucks is closing seven locations in downtown San Francisco during a rampant crime surge. Jack Phillips will appear before the Colorado Supreme Court for a gender transition cake case. No, for him, it's not over. Well, on this day in history, 1947, President Harry S. Truman, he delivers the first televised White House address as he speaks on the world's food crisis. 1953, Earl Warren is sworn in as the 14th Chief Justice of the United States, succeeding Fred M. Vinson. 1958, racially desegregated Clinton High School in Clinton, Tennessee, is mostly leveled by an early morning bombing. 1983, Solidarity founder Lech Walesa is named winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. 1984, the Space Shuttle Challenger blasts off from the Kennedy Space Center on an eight-day mission. The crew includes Catherine Sullivan, who becomes the first American woman to walk in space, and Mark Granu, the first Canadian astronaut. 1988, Democrat Lloyd Benston lambastes Republican Dan Quayle during a vice presidential debate, saying, Senator, I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. 1989, a jury in Charlotte, North Carolina, convicts former PTL evangelist Jim Baker of using his television show to defraud followers. 2001, tabloid photo editor Robert Stevens dies from inhaling anthrax, the first of a series of anthrax cases in Florida, New York, New Jersey, and Washington. 2005, defying the White House, senators vote 90 to 9 to approve an amendment sponsored by Senator John McCain that would prohibit the use of cruel, inhumane, or degrading treatment or punishment against anyone in U.S. government custody. The reluctant President George W. Bush would later sign off on that amendment. 2018, the government reports that the unemployment rate fell in September to 3.7 percent, the lowest since 1969, reflecting a healthy economy driven by strong consumer and business spending. Also in 2018, in an elaborate prank orchestrated by the street artist Banksy, one of the artist's paintings self-destructs in front of auction goers in London. 
moments after it had been sold for $1.4 million. I wonder if he regretted that stunt. $1.4 million. And the painting was no more. Well, we are out of time. I do want to thank James Blend for producing. Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of uh, your day. Tomorrow is the Pastors Appreciation Breakfast, so we're looking forward to hosting pastors and ministry leaders and just expressing our gratitude and uh, respect for them and the uh, faithfulness to their calling. So looking forward to that. If you are planning to join us, uh, please uh, stop by and say hello as we're looking forward to, uh, to blessing you. All right. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.